James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, who count those blessed, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would keep us from falling under judgment, but rather help us to stand in the assembly of the righteous of God and in before that host and in as part of that host of uh, one day in heaven. We pray that you would help us to uh, not grumble, but but to take carefully and think carefully about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would inform us in that uh, this morning through James 5. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, James turns full circle back again to where he started. You remember he started out in chapter 1, verse 2 and following, and he's speaking to a, a diasporatic, if I can make up that word, uh, people, uh, people that are aliens and in the diaspora throughout the world. In other words, they're spread out all over the place. Christians are in every locality and may feel decentralized and cut off from larger body of God's people. Here in New England, we know that the church of Jesus Christ, those faithful churches are often small uh, very much unlike the South, where there are vast, massive churches. Uh, but here we are as a young, small congregation rejoicing in the Lord and serving God together. Well, there are Christians all over the place, in New England and in Mississippi and in Florida and in California and in Canada and Ontario and Quebec, and there are Christians even in uh, Slovakia and in Ukraine, uh, many Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord. There are Christians throughout China. We are told that there are more Christians in China within five years than there will be communists. Uh, there are Christians all over the world. And there are Christians that are all over James's world that he's writing to and saying, look, even though you're dispersed, even though you fail yourself in the midst of the societies and cultures in which you find yourself, nonetheless, you're still part of the kingdom of God. You're still part of the people of God. And when you encounter various trials, you're to count it all joy. So these are people who are struggling. These are people who are in the midst of grave trials, trials within themselves, trials from their society and from their kings and laws and legal demands placed upon them. And what did James say? He said we are to be steadfast under trial. Now we are very little, although we live in a different time, in a very vastly different time, we face still very little change in what we need as Christians. We too are needing, in the midst of our own 
dispersion throughout the world as Christians to be steadfast under trials. Trials come in many different forms. Trials of every kind. Trials of an inner struggle and, and, and battle against temptation. James has referenced that very idea. There are trials outside of ourselves where, as I mentioned in prayer just a few moments ago, Christians who are forcibly converted to Islam, Christians who are imprisoned because they simply had a prayer meeting in their home. We may experience difficulty and trial and, and even in the midst of our interpersonal conflict. We're in the struggle of day-to-day simply getting up, pulling ourselves out of our beds, and being willing to serve the Lord. Opening up our Bibles, beginning the day in prayer. These are battles, all of them, and we are to be steadfast when we are faced with trial. Persevering through God-sent afflictions and difficulties of life is actually the pathway to sanctification. Growth and maturation as a Christian it's, it's a progressive road to becoming perfect and complete, like he said in chapter 1, verse 4, lacking in nothing. If we desire to grow and mature in the Christian life, then we need steadfastness. We need perseverance. We need patience. It's a truth. It's one of the tenets, one of the five tenets of the Reformed faith that we believe in the perseverance of the saints. And there's a reason why we believe that every Christian who has truly and genuinely confessed faith in Jesus Christ will persevere to the end. The reason why is because God is at work preserving and and upholding your and my faith so that when we are faced with trials, we will not succumb ultimately to them because God, who is faithful, keeps us. Meanwhile, James is calling Christian people in his own time, as well as us this morning, to patience and steadfastness. And he grounds that call to steadfastness as he says, look, you as Christians, you need to be steadfast. You need to be patient. You need to endure in the midst of all the the vagaries of life and the trials and difficulties and in, the, in, in all the, 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 the upheavals of faith that we find ourselves enduring. And he grounds the reason and the command in one spiritual reality. Jesus Christ is coming again. He says that you and I need to endure and to be patient in the midst of trials, that we are to persevere and be steadfast for one reason. Because Jesus is coming again. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. This is the theme of that, this particular passage this morning. James is calling each and every one of us to a steady perseverance in the midst of life's distractions. And he gives one reason. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. It seems to me that James has place this idea of the Lord coming again as one of the most serious, significant, uh, the most influential beliefs of the Christian that ought to influence every single aspect of our lives. Should I get up this morning? The Lord Jesus is coming again. Should I go to church this morning? The Lord Jesus is coming again soon. Should I raise my children for the for the kingdom of God? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again soon. Should I buy this new car? Should I make this investment? Should I, 
Should I, should I, should I? All the questions of life. Consider this one fact. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again soon. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again soon should influence every decision, every thought, the ways in which we live and and the ways in which we use our time, even in recreation. We should we should always be motivating ourselves by this one factor. And James seeks to motivate us this morning. <clears throat> James has been discussing the subject of personal holiness and of freedom, a holy freedom from the world's blemishes of ungodliness. And uh, he has made clear in an argument since the very beginning of this letter that faith without works is dead. That a Christian who says, I believe certain propositions. I believe that they are true, and yet I don't believe that I am in any way obligated to live in a way that, that, that displays my fear of God. I don't believe that I am obligated to keep the laws of God. I don't believe that I am obligated in any way to pursue righteousness and holiness, things which the Word of God declares to us that unless we pursue holiness, we will not see the Lord. Thanks be to God, our pursuit of holiness is not dependent ultimately upon our own personal effort because we often are failing. But the truth is that the Holy Spirit who lives within us is at work in us, enabling and prompting and prodding and pressing us to live in a godly way, leading us in the works which God has promised covenantally that he would lead us in as a mark of our inclusion in the covenant of grace. Anything that we do is that might be good or that in any way godly, we see God as the author of it. God, the Holy Spirit, has worked that grace in us. And yet, we can deny the work of the Holy Spirit. And certainly, if we're unbelievers, we cannot participate. And, and we can refuse to obey the Lord. Well, if if there's no practice of godliness in our lives, then we are most likely not a Christian. That's the argument of James. James says, but if you are a Christian, as as imperfect as your pursuit of holiness will be, as filled with sin as we most certainly are, even as Christians, nonetheless, the Lord Jesus Christ will preserve your faith and bring you through. So there's one thing that should motivate us as we as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. There's one thing that should motivate us as we live day by day. The Lord Jesus is coming. The expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ attracts and calls and woos and pulls us away from the world and makes and moves us to a position where we desire to please him to live in a way that is in accord with his word the fact that he's coming as the lord and judge also convinces motivates us to the same because we fear the lord the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the lord the great examiner is coming and he will examine whether we have remained steadfast and where we have sinned and where we have not done the things which we ought to have done the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of the, the Son of God will cover over our sins. Lord, our God, will examine us in that last great day. And unless we are covered with the blood of Christ and believed in him and are saved by that blood and washed in that blood, 
and living life in the light of that blood and, res- and, and, and redemption through his blood. And the truth is that perhaps the truth is not in us. <clears throat> well, James has a number of ways in which he, he seeks to illustrate the principle of, of thinking, considering the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and living life in light of that return and being motivated into holiness because of it. He, he uses a number of principles and illustrations and examples. It's a very helpful pastoral conversation he has with us today. So he takes up that subject of perseverance and he reminds us the Lord is coming. If there's one most significant thing that should illuminate the believer's life and illuminate our and motivate our our activity in any given day for the kingdom of God and not for self, but for the glory of God and not our own self-glory, it is this. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. Do we believe that? I know we give we give voice to it. We believe it fundamentally. It is a mental assertion. But do we believe it? Have we staked our lives upon this reality? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. I have no other hope except in this, in this reality. I, I, I am hoping in no other thing but that I will one day be face to face with my Redeemer. Or are we busy building a legacy? Are we busy enriching ourselves? Are we busy raising up something else altogether? And are we thinking as we go to bed at night, not that the Lord may return, but rather an assumption being made in our own mind and heart that we will have tomorrow. That tomorrow is promised to us. And each day we falsely profess that to ourselves, not knowing and living ignorantly of the fact that with the Lord a thousand years is as one day and one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And so the Lord is coming and he is not negligent in his promise, but the Lord is coming. James uses a very unique word here. And when he says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He uses a very unique and special word to describe the manner in which Jesus comes. This word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, and it's often used by the Apostle Paul as he describes various persons coming. He speaks of Timothy coming. He speaks of of Stephanus and the coming of Stephanus, and he uses that very same word that James uses here, and 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 it implies not just that an individual is going to travel, but that an individual is going to come personally and his presence, his or her presence, will be personally felt. And so James is saying that Jesus is not just going to come as an event that we'll see in the clouds, but he's going to come personally and we will know that personal presence of the Lord and he will be present with his people. Now, I don't know... I don't know how millions and billions of people who have who have professed faith in Jesus Christ savingly, whose souls have been redeemed. I don't know how all of us can feel the very personal and immediate presence of Jesus. I only know that Jesus walked in, into a room whose doors were locked and immediately he was with his disciples. I only know that Jesus looked from the cross and locked eyes with Peter. 
I only know that Jesus spoke personally from the cross, telling John to care for his mother. I only know that Jesus spoke before thousands of people, and they all heard him, and many believed. I believe that same Jesus can enter into the immediate presence of every single one of his followers, such that all of us feel, not that Jesus is is in some great field, miles away, we can barely hear him, but rather that he is here with me and with you. We will feel, we will see, we will know the presence of Jesus. What a wonderful thought. But Jesus will be with me, will be with you, and we will be with him. Isn't that the, the crux of his, his promise to us as believers that we will one day we will depart from this world, but we will be with the Lord? We will not be with the Lord somehow as, as we're, we're at some massive concert where we can barely see the stage. It's a tiny little thing way off in the distance. And we have TV, TV screens, uh, multiple TV screens, so that we can see some reflection of, of what we're simply trying to watch. We can hear the sounds. No, Jesus, when the Lord comes, we will know his immediate physical presence, all of us. We will see him. We will know him. He will not be ignorant of us because he has promised to give his life for all those who are his, all those for whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What do we know about the second coming of Christ? We don't know an awful lot. We know a certain number of things from the scriptures. Much has been told to us through scripture. We have varying views about the return and what events will unfold, but let me just simply say these are what scripture says explicitly. He taught that his coming would be as vivid, visible, and unmistakable as lightning that will illuminate the whole sky, that every eye will see and every ear will hear. That when he comes, it will not be silent. It will not be some sort of an event that no one was aware of. But now afterwards, we look back and we see, oh, Jesus must have come. No. When he comes, there will be a shout of the archangel. There will be a trumpet in the clouds. Every eye will see. Every ear will hear. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be displayed in the heavens. And we will be brought up to him as he brings all those who have already preceded us. It will happen on a day which cannot be known in advance. It will bring about a separation or a taking away of the people of God from this world and a, and, a, and a differentiation between those who are the people of God and those who are not. There is either a group of, uh, you are not either numbered amongst the wicked or you are numbered amongst the saved. You're numbered amongst the elect of God, those for whom Christ died, or you're numbered amongst those who have forsaken God, have no interest in him, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life and who will fall under God's judgment in the last day. Make certain that you are not amongst that group. Believe and trust in Jesus Christ today. Turn away from your unbelief. Repent of your sins. There is forgiveness with Jesus Christ. Christ came to die, and he came to die for sinners' sake. But those who deny their sin, who refuse to say that, yes, we are in need of a Savior, we are in need of being redeemed from our sins, those who refuse to acknowledge that they have sinned against the living God, 
Surely those are the ones who are the wicked, who will be on the left hand of the Lord Jesus, who will be asked to depart, who will be commanded to depart from him. Those who are Christ will be gathered forever into his presence, caught up to meet him in the air, transformed into an unblemished holiness as they are at last made fully alive in Jesus Christ. To unbelievers, the expectation of the Lord's return is a matter for cynical doubt and dismissal, unbelief and refusal. But to believers, this sure hope constitutes a strong call to endure, to prepare, to be steadfast, to live for the Lord and not self, continue daily to turn away from sin, to repent continually of sin, and to be prepared as those as those maidens who were at the wedding feast, as Jesus illustrated this fact, those five who were prepared, who kept their their lamps trimmed, who were ready for the coming of the bridegroom, that's who we are supposed to be. May God help us. The Lord himself will come in power. His foes will perish. The heavens and the earth will cease. They will be replaced by the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And the new Zion, the holy city of the Lord, will come down from heaven, and there we will dwell with the Lord forever. An absolute rapture, in joy, in thanksgiving, not bored in any way, but filled with all the pleasures of God's creation, and filled with a rapturous love for Jesus, uninhibited by any any embrace of sin. Now, all that we've said is reflective of what Scripture says. It's interesting that James doesn't say anything to really expound upon the return of Christ, because he knows that to those whom he's writing, they have an expectation of the return of Christ. He doesn't expound any more on it. He knows that believers are aware of it, and he's saying, look, this needs to motivate you in, in godliness and the pursuit of holiness. We shouldn't just be aware of his second coming. We shouldn't just affirm, I know the Lord's going to come again. No, we should live in such a way that demonstrates that we believe it to be true. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming again. Jesus Christ is going to descend from the clouds. Do you believe it? It should motivate, it should motivate every single thing you think and do. It should be behind everything that we, we take up and act out. The Lord is coming. It should motivate our prayer life when we are lazy. It should motivate our conduct, our godly pursuit of righteousness, because we know the Lord is coming. It keeps us from putting off till tomorrow what we can do tomorrow, what we ought to do today. Because we don't know when the Lord is coming. We only know that the Lord is coming. He wants us to live in a spirit of expectation, to be prepared, so we will not be ashamed as unfaithful stewards. This hope has to drive our motivation to persevere in order to please the Lord. And Scripture drives this home. There are 300 references in the New Testament referring to the coming of the Lord, to the return of Jesus Christ. 300, that's one in every 13 verses. One in every 13 verses in the New Testament speaks of the return of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't that motivate us? 
If the word of God places such a prominence on that theme, should we not as well? Christ's second coming is to be our motivation for all that we do and will and think, bearing in mind then that Christ is coming again to be amongst his people. James points to the coming judge and look at the judge as he comes. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Jesus shows us in Matthew 25, for verse 14 through 30, and Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, whether you're talking about the minas or the talents, the landowner, a very rich man, is about to leave, and so he gives to his servants a number of talents or minas and says, look, I'm giving these to you before I leave, and off he goes. And of course, there are many, there are a number of those servants, too, who actually build up an increase of the minas that they have received. But there's one who hides it and puts it away and says, I know that you were, you're were, you a man who reaps where he does not sow, and so I was afraid that I might lose it, and I buried it in the ground. What does the master say? Take that one away from him and give it to the one with ten. To whom much is given, much is required. All of us have been given much by the Lord and the gracious God of the harvest, the God who gives gifts and God who has created us with abilities and skills. Each of those stories concerns stewards, those who have been entrusted, servants who are entrusted with the care of their master's goods during his his absence. The main emphasis in all of these is that there are servants who prove themselves faithful, and there are servants who prove themselves unfaithful. What does your life prove about you? Are you a faithful, those struggling, those sometimes giving in to the trials that we endure, sometimes impatient, sometimes not so steadfast, but nonetheless picking ourselves up by the grace of God going once again in prayer, asking the Lord, 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 I know my unfaithfulness. Help me. And the Lord brings about renewal, and day by day, he grants us the ability to stand, and we find his mercies renewed each and every morning. Or have you really given no thought to this? You really don't care. Uh, This is not something that concerns you. But for believers... It greatly concerns us that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the question for the, the Christian is not one day that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ in question as to whether or not we are saved, but rather in question as to what rewards we may or may not receive. For the believer, we will not face that judgment of God that somehow is inquisitive and has no idea about whether or not we are believers. We'll stand at the right hand of our Savior. Our works will be examined. The ways in which we lived our lives, the the ways in which we used the resources given to us by the King of Kings, will be examined. 
Paul actually insists in his epistles that even the Christian who makes the poorest showing in this life has little to show when he appears before the judgment seat of Christ, will nonetheless, even though through fire, will be saved. The point is that if you're a believer this morning, you will produce, you will bear fruit. The life of Christ is within you. You're joined in union to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in your heart. You will bear fruit for God. In the end of it all, just like these two parables, God's servants who have been given equal amounts of grace will be invited to bring the fruits of their work before the Lord for his inspection. And that is what we will do. You will be invited. You are invited by the Lord of, of, of hosts, by the Lord of the, of, of uh, of 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 the um, uh, searching for a word and it just disappeared from my mind. Forgive me. By the Lord of the harvest. There you go. And we, it is our great privilege to say to bring forth all that God has granted to us and the ways in which we have expanded upon the gifts that He has given to us and showing that yes, Lord, we have used what you have given. We have been stewards, imperfect stewards, but the Holy Spirit by his power has enabled us to serve him in this wicked world. What are we doing with the things that we have been given possession of, dear friends? What gains and advances have we made? Have we become more like Christ through entering into the riches of full salvation? Have we grown in holiness and maturity through the indwelling Spirit of God? Do we know the Scriptures in, a, in an expanding and deepening way? How many others have we told about Christ? Have we really devoted every talent and ability that we possess to Him and to His service? Are we serving the King before whom one day we will stand? Are we doing everything to the glory of God? We may never forget that Paul uses the metaphor of a refining fire to describe the searching nature of our judge's inquiry one day when he comes again. We can't deny that the fear of the Lord must drive our incessant desire to please our master. That we should fear our God, that we should fear his perusal. We should recognize and own the fact that one day he will examine all that we have and all that we have done. However, and just as truthfully so, the point should not be lost that our judge is also our saving, loving, caring Savior. Not only must we fear our God, because it is the beginning of wisdom, but also we can delight in him who is at work in us, accomplishing all his good and holy will. Such that even though we are imperfect and unfaithful and often negligent, nevertheless God is faithful he will carry out what he has purposed for us. If we are truly his, we will not be found negligent at the end, but rather Christ and his righteousness and all that God has purposed to accomplish through us will, and ha- will be brought to fruition. James goes further. <clears throat> James goes further in his discussion and he says be patient strengthen your hearts for the coming of the lord is near is james lying because james wrote and he wrote to his audience and the coming of the lord for them was not so near 
Well, we have to remember that God is an eternal God. Years for us, as slow or as fast as they may go, are like nothing to him. And in fact, he's not bound by them. God doesn't not pass linearly into the next moment continually like we do. And we can't get that moment back. God created time. I don't know all the implications of that, but God is not bound by time as we are. He cannot... He can go back and forward on the timeline however he wishes. What we do know is that God will accomplish all his holy will. What we do know is that Christ, Christ will come soon. As it relates to eternity, Christ will come soon. As it relates to the the brevity of human life, we will either ascend to him Or he will descend upon this earth soon. Christ is coming. James's concern is that none of us should be not ready for the return of the Lord. So he calls us to a state of readiness. He wants us to be fruitful and patient. He says, "Be you too." In verse eight, you be you too. Be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. He gives six commands in this passage, two of which are negative, but four of, uh, of which are, are, po- are positive. Therefore, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be, being, he, he illustrates that in the life of the farmer. And then in verse 8, the second command, you too be patient. Third, strengthen your hearts. Do not complain. There's a negative one. Um Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who have endured, who have heard of the endurance, so on and so on. Above all, my brethren, do not swear. Six different commands, two negatives, four positives. But at least two times, and and perhaps even in various other ways, again and again, he encourages us to be patient. One of our greatest needs as human beings is to be patient, is it not? And he lists a couple of sins that would, in fact, show that we're struggling with patience. You may not think it's so, but it is. In verse 12, it's kind of mystical, as it were, as to why he mentions do not swear by heaven uh, or by earth or, or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. He has in view Christ and his return and the judgment of the Lord. And so he says two things. Do not swear or make an oath. And secondly, do not uh, grumble. Do not complain in verse 9 against one another. Both of those are things that have an implication upon our perspective on the return of the Lord. If we don't really fear the return of the Lord, if we're really not considering that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, and we look to that with both fear and with hope, Fear in the sense of reverence for Christ, a desire to please him. Reverence simply because he is our savior. Nothing can separate us from his love. Impatience can show itself in two different ways, amongst others, grumbling and complaining against each other. or complaining against our situation. Rather than living in such a way that I anticipate the return of Christ and I want to live in such a way that I, I, I show an example in myself that I anticipate and long for his return. I'm complaining about things. 
Isn't that showing and displaying that within myself I have an attitude of uh, that, that the Lord is not coming, that I can complain uh, even now and, and I can show in my impatience and complaints against brothers and sisters in Christ or the, the fact that the Lord has not yet returned in my lifetime. Maybe I'm showing myself impatient with God and with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Or maybe I'm making oaths. I promise in light of the circumstances facing me and and in the return of Christ, uh, and and I'm going to set that aside, but I'll be there next week. Now, swearing is is not something that uh, James has in view as something where we we use curse words. Uh, Swearing for him, and of course Paul says in other places that we are to not use coarse language, that we are to not use words of cursing. Uh, That's stated in other places in the Bible. But James, for him, an oath or cursing or, or, or swearing is making a promise. Making a promise upon, based upon something that is far, far, far out of our control. If I tell you I'm going to be there next week, shouldn't I qualify that with what James gave us as pastoral advice in an earlier portion of this epistle? If the Lord wills. Remember that? If the Lord is willing. If the Lord is willing. But the man who swears and says, I will do this. There's a person who does not anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. There's a there's a person who is not being patient and steadfast, immovable. There's a person who is far too immersed in this world. Far too immersed in his own sense of his personal power to stand even in an evil day. But the fruitfulness of patience is steadfastness and self-control. James references rain. He references the early rain and the late rain. There is a farmer. Uh, many of us have passed by fields out in our area. There, there are all sorts of fields to the north of us, to the east of us, to the west, to the south. There are farm fields on the way to the hospital. There are farm fields on the way to the, the airport. There are farm fields all over the place. And we see that in the early spring, the rains come, the seeds are placed in the ground. And then later on in the season, there are rains that come and and plump up the grain and make strong pumpkins and cantaloupes and make them all perfectly fruitful, ripe and ready to harvest. Well, James is saying, look, the Christian life is a process. The Christian life is, as a dear old friend used to say, a journey. The Christian life is a process, a process of growth, and patience is its central requirement. Steadfastness, not shirking our duty as believers, but being faithful to the last. If we are patient, we anticipate Christ's return, and we long to be with him. James isn't telling us that holiness is something that simply washes over the believer. He's telling us that holiness is something we have to pursue And so the farmer plants, the farmer waters, the farmer harvests. James assures us that all is well, that our our patience must continue on as we anticipate the return of Jesus. We examine the wonder of the God who adorns the lilies of the field, by whose power the seeds which we plant are germinated. And he is the one who has begun that new life within our soul, and he will bring it to completion. 
I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, is what Paul says. So that we need not stand ashamed in the day of the Lord. God will have us ready too, and his work of sanctification in us will not be found lacking. Our own maturation and harvest will be ready and will be complete, and nothing will mar the return of his son when one day we see him. Well, that's why James tells us, look, watch your heart. Watch your heart. He says in verse 8, strengthen your hearts. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. We need to have a steely resolution in our heart, a persistent faith that though all things may not be understood nor even clear, and even though we may not be able to describe fully what the return of Christ will look like or when it will come, we must patiently seek to live for Jesus. Patiently seek to acknowledge that day To not be inconsistent, but to anticipate the return of the Lord. To steel our hearts to remember that we are to live in such a way that the Lord Jesus is coming. Lastly, dear friends, when we live for Christ and when we are called to patience, the truth is privilege and trials go hand in hand. We are those who are dispersed throughout the world, who are suffering, who endure various trials. You think about it, Jeremiah was hunted by the men of his hometown, specifically because they wanted to stop him from speaking in the name of the Lord. They put him in a pit. They buried him up to his neck. Ezekiel suffered painful bereavement as the setting in which he delivered his message. Daniel suffered deportation, lions, liars. Hosea's marriage breakdown was in itself the Lord's words to and through him, but it was pain, and it was painful. So James says, consider them. Consider the prophets. Look back upon those who who anticipated, who suffered and were patient, who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count blessed those who endured. Isn't it true? You look at the life of a believer who is been steadfast and faithful to the end of their days. And we stand there before the casket. We see the dead body inside. The friend that we knew is gone. Their soul has ascended to God. The silver cord is snapped. And what do we do? We marvel at how God kept them to the last. We rejoice over how they were faithful to the end. How they loved the Lord to the end of their days. About a week or so ago, I wept with my sister over the loss of her husband who loved the Lord to the last of his days. I rejoice over his life. And last night I received notice from my dear friend Greg that his wife, Jeannie, had died too. And I weep with him. I grieve with him over the loss of his wife. But I'm thankful that she loved the Lord to the last of her days. And as Greg spoke, I can imagine through tears and deep grief, he said, she's with the Lord now. She's with the Lord now. That is to be our highest motivation as Christians. One day we will be with the Lord. 
One day the Lord will come. Or one day we will leave and we'll come to him. But the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Job, in his experience of great suffering, and in the vagaries of life and the difficulty of losing almost everything, his skin flaking off, falling, lying on a dung heap, broken and suffering deeply, in total questions about the abandonment of God, he says it, he uses the language, you've left me, you're no longer with me, your counsel is taken away from me. Nonetheless, he professed in faith, I will see my Redeemer face to face. When you're in the midst of great suffering and when you're hurting and deeply grieved, is your soul consoled with this one thought? One day I will be with the Lord. The Lord is coming, dear friends, and we are to live in such a way that shows that we believe that. Are you doing so? May we repent where we have forgotten. May we repent where we have set aside such a thing. May we repent of our sinful attitudes and our love of the world. Are we not worldly? Yes, we are. The world has infected all of us. But let me remind you this morning, James says you're a Christian. James says you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. James says you are to anticipate the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And James is warning us that ought to motivate us in the Christian life day after day after day. The Lord is coming. Let's pray. Father, we pray that on that great day that we would be prepared, having been prepared by the power of the risen Christ. Forgive us of our sins and our laziness But, O God, be at work in us to do that which is pleasing in your sight. Do not let our sins in any way curtail that that purposed carrying out. But help us, Lord, in the meantime to serve you, to remember that the Lord is coming, to anticipate the Lord of glory coming in all of his resplendent perfection and holiness. O Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.